Uh, we celebrate you moms here. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we're in the midst of a series about relationships, and who's the better referee for relationships than mothers, right? And, uh, and so last week we talked about relational oneness is God's design uh, for us. We're not meant to be uh, in fractured relationships. We thrive better as individuals when we are in healthy relationships with other people, not in constant conflict. And so we're in the midst of a series where we're looking at things that create stress, depression, anxiety, or brokenness in life. And, and so uh, we're looking at what does God provide that provides an anchor in the midst of all the conflict that we can often deal with in the areas of relationships and in the emotional battles that we can all face. And so uh, today is on conflict management. And yes, on Mother's Day, what better than to speak to this because they are the referees, as this cartoon will, will show you up on the screen. Uh, it says, you know, it's a mediator saying, obviously the mediator didn't work, so I've brought in everyone's moms. And he's talking to adults, notice that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so funny. You never get too old for mom to speak into your life. My mom still will say when I get a cold, uh, she'll like, have you taken your vitamin C? And I'm like, I am 48 years old. I mean, do I still need to hear, have you taken your vitamin C? It's like, yes, I'm taking my vitamin C. But uh, this, past, uh, this past summer, my, my family, we were able to enjoy sabbatical together uh, for three months. And one of the things we did was go on a whitewater rafting trip in Colorado. And, and our family was genuinely excited about this. In fact, significantly excited about it until we got to the shoreline. My daughter saw all of the rapids. And, and so we had to coax her into getting into the boat. And uh, so my wife volunteered to stay back with her while Caden and I could be up front and enjoying the ride. But as we got into some of the deeper white waters, then you see this face on my daughter. It's, it's not joy in that face. It, that's, that's horror. That's being very alarmed. Uh, but my wife is right there making sure it's okay. It's okay, Kira. We'll, we'll live through this, we think. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we had a lot of fun. But at the end of it, Caden and I are like, this is great. This is awesome. And, and Kira was like, I am not getting in that boat again. I'm not getting that vote again, and we were just laughing about it all, but uh, truly thankful for my wife. She's a great mom and was willing to give up some of the greater views to be back with our daughter, who is sitting very low in the boat. But uh, having said that, we're going we're gonna to genuinely take a look at conflict management today, and we're going to go to the book of Acts in chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be beginning in verse 36. So we talked about relational oneness last week and that that is what God has designed us for. When things, when things start to break down relationally, a lot of things in life begin to break down. Emotionally, societally speaking, a lot of things begin to be hindered when our relationships are not whole. And, uh, and I will also say that in Scripture, not always are you getting the the, the, the positives of all of our heroes in Scripture. In fact, we get some of the negatives. We get, we, we're given true transparency into their lives. They're not perfect people. And today we're going to look at a couple of men that were incredible partners in ministry. 
In fact, they were the first to go out outside of Israel on a missionary journey to establish the church abroad. And this was Paul and Barnabas. So successful were they that every town they went to, they were able to establish a church. Now, not every uh, pastor or minister gets the privilege of planting churches, but certainly those of us that have been around that know it's no easy or simple thing to establish a church in a new community. And in their case, they went to multiple towns and were able to establish churches in each one of them. And it was, it was celebrated throughout the church, especially as they right, arrived back into Israel. So it came a point in time where this successful team decides to go back to where they had served. Because when you establish churches, they're like infants. They need care. They need strengthening. They need guidance because they're fledgling. They're infantile in their development as churches. And so that's where we pick it up in this text, this hugely successful, very popular team in the church. Paul and Barnabas are having a discussion to go back to the places they established these churches. So let's begin in verse 36. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So you have a very popular team, a very successful team, and yet something happens that breaks it up. In this case, we know that great partnerships accomplish much. I mean, we, they established the church in Cyprus, Pamphylia, Galatia, basically a lot of these uh, uh, countries that would now be in modern-day Turkey and parts of Greece. Uh, a very successful start. And, and then as part of their having process and debrief this with the greater church in Israel, they realize it's time that we should probably go back and encourage. The vision was accepted by both Barnabas and Paul. The vision to go back and strengthen the church. However, a philosophical disagreement comes into play. So vision's the same. We need to go back and visit these fledgling churches and strengthen them. But how to do it begins to find disagreement. In fact, there was an alignment in this because Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Mark had basically abandoned and deserted the team before when they were coming through Pamphylia. So apparently he was with them in ministry in Cyprus, but when they arrived in Pamphylia, something happened. We do not know what, but Mark departed. He deserted them. He quit serving with them. Apparently this bothered Paul so much that the idea of taking Mark on a future journey was not appealing, and, and quite frankly, he was opposed to it. 
Now, Barnabas, you need to know, we know this from another text in Scripture, that Mark was Barnabas' cousin. So there's family at play in this. And, and Barnabas is known as the great encourager. He was uh, a little bit more, what should I say, relationally savvy, more so than Paul. And, and Paul tended to be a little bit more of a, a stronger, assertive leader. But in this case, both men appeal to something. Paul wants to, yes, retrace the steps of the first journey so that they can encourage. But in this the way to do it, there wasn't agreement. So he says, I think it wise not to take somebody on such a journey that has abandoned us before. He claims wisdom. It's not wise to take somebody who quits on you when you know the journey is going to be intense. Because it's one thing to come in and establish a church. But once the church is established, enemies begin to rise up. And so the intensity amps up when you go the second time. So he does, cannot afford somebody quitting on the team. That can create harm. So wisdom prevails in saying it's not wise to take somebody into that situation. Barnabas, on the other hand, errs on the side of grace. Should we not give Mark, if he's willing, a second opportunity to go on this journey and succeed and maybe learn from the things of the past. Can we not, in this moment, make a biblical case that Barnabas was right? That to give a second chance to someone who had failed the first time, extending grace, pouring into them, giving them a second opportunity to see if they would succeed. Can you not make a biblical case that Barnabas is right? I would venture to guess that many of us here in this room are second chance people. I mean, think about it. How many chances have we received before we landed where we've landed? I can make a fantastic case from Scripture alone, but also in my own life and, and, and doing life with others. Second chances are important. But I can also tell you, I can make a very strong biblical case that Paul was right. That he was right to not take somebody who could hinder the ministry and cause division. Somebody whose words are filled with integrity, whose commitments are following through and does not abandon the truth or the church. After all, isn't it Jesus who comments about, I am the good shepherd, I am not the shepherd who runs away from the flock at the first sign of danger. Those are Jesus' words. That he commends the shepherds that stay in the midst of danger. So you have both men who can make a strong case for being biblically correct in their decision. Paul saying it is wise not to take somebody whose character has already been proven to be short of what is desired. But I can also say Barnabas was also correct. But by the grace of God, how would any of us be able to go on this trip? So why should we not give him a second opportunity? So now what do you do? You've got two men who can make a biblical case for being right. They both have the same vision to strengthen and grow the church. But this philosophical as to who is going to be on the team 
cannot be agreed upon, and the reasons for the agreement are both correct and accurate and truthful. You can't separate by who is right in this case. So what do you do? And how do you go forward when compromise can't be found? You know, I, re I can relate to a situation where successful partnerships hit a, a point where it could break and the church could be hindered. About 12 years ago, or actually about 15 years ago, I was in a situation that involves somebody that many of you would know. If you have known my past, you would know that one of my mentors in life, one of my greatest uh, uh, leaders that I emulate a lot of things from, one that I consider a dear brother is our former district superintendent, Steve Musser. Steve has been a part of this, helping this church through different seasons of time. He was also a part of my installation as pastor here, and he was also a part of my ordination here a few years ago. But Steve and I, while we had had many years of successful partnership, hit a crisis point of sharp dispute. I mean, you see in this verse 39, it says that, that not only did they have unified vision, but they also had a clear, sharply defined, different perspective on how to meet that vision. In the same way, Steve Musser and I ran into a situation where we both had the same vision, but our path of getting there was very different. In fact, it was during the building project of West Shore. Now, don't let that scare you. Building projects, though, can create disagreements. This has been wonderfully unified. Our whole process has been incredible. But what I want to point to is something that happened in Steve's office one day when I found out that after having poured hours and hours and hours into the design for the new youth center of that building, of which was about 10,000 square feet, it was a massive part of the building with very clear design and purpose. We had been working on that design for three years, multiple meetings, and now we're in the construction point at the same phase as we are now, where earth is being moved, things are starting to show up above the ground, and I find out the young adult pastor of the church really liked the youth center that we designed and came up with a different plan on how to use it at the cost of the youth ministry needing to leave a good portion of it and find other space. Now, I'm typically a very collaborative type of leader, but what I underestimated is that when you put three years into the design of something, and you have clear vision that is marking it, you become entrenched. I was not happy to find out that not only did a young adult pastor present this idea without talking to me, but he had had conversations with the executive pastor who affirmed the idea. So I hear that Steve had affirmed it. I go into his office, and we had it out. It was loud enough that I would say that he discovered that when it was all done that there was nobody else in that section of the office wing. I'm guessing they went to the prayer chapel and began to pray. <laughs> but in the intensity of that moment, as sharp 
a sharp disagreement has certainly happened. Steve got to this place with tears in his eyes and looks at me with all the energy he had, and he says, I would take a bullet for you. And it just startled me, that statement. And it shocked me out of the reality of being frustrated and angry at him. And instead of, in my anger, looking at him as an adversary, I realized it was a brother that just simply we needed to work out the issues that were causing the sharp disagreement. It took time, but because we had unified vision, we were able to figure out a path forward. But let me tell you, it was difficult. And it wasn't resolved easily. It required effort on the part of both Steve and I and this other pastor. And I will tell you that beyond those whose offices were near ours, the church had no idea as to the sharp disagreement that we had. The church had no idea that there was a potential crack that could have severed the team. I look back and realizing how much anger and how much hurt was on both sides of this issue, that was a key point where the enemy could have created a divide that would have been destructive to West Shore Evangelical Free Church. But I will tell you that to this day, until now, nobody ever knew about that disagreement. There is godly relationship between Steve and I. There is godly relationship between that young adult pastor and I. There is a partnership that we would embrace working together at any time if God gave us the opportunity. But it's not without the moments where I wish had, in the moment to be able to just say whatever I wanted to say and do whatever I wanted to do to let them know my anger in the situation. You feel me? When you get to those moments, when you feel violated, you just want the freedom to just let them have it. And I felt justified. I look back and there was some justification, but I let it go to a place that was not healthy. And in the end of the day, the church continued forward. And we as brothers would still welcome the opportunity to serve together and alongside. In the same way, you see something happening here in the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Vision's the same. We want to see the kingdom of God expand and grow. We want to see the church be all that she can be in strength and confidence and, and being right on truth. So how is it then that Paul and Barnabas were able to go forward and not split the church wide open. How is it that in this moment, that at this critical point, two of the most important people in the life of the church that are about to create a ripple effect that who knows what the magnitude would be, how is it that it didn't happen negatively, but that something happened positively? And I believe that there are some things to learn from this context that we can take from knowing what happens later, but also knowing what they did in the moment that kept the church from being hindered by their disagreement. First of all, what we can see in this text is that the vision for the church 
guided them even through the thickness of their sharp disagreement. What was their motive for even partnering together at all? What was their intent for their future and what was to come ahead never left their sights. It was always what was in front of them. Their vision to serve the Lord and growing His church remained the center. And as a result, they were not deterred from that vision that they had received from God. And so therefore, it wasn't about vision. It became more about how to philosophically move forward from this moment when they were not aligned. So they were still submissive to the leadership of God in their lives. That was not in question. We are still going to serve God. We're still going to grow the church. So as a result, the way they handled this was they formed two teams. So instead of it being Paul, Silas, Barnabas, and Mark, and others that had been on the first missionary journey, it was going to be Barnabas and Mark, and it was going to be Paul and Silas. And they were going to go different routes to go and strengthen the church. So what caused Paul to do what he did was wisdom. So through his wisdom and the guidance of wisdom, and he and Silas went to form new church plants as well as strengthen the former churches. You see, in their journey, they took the land route. Instead of going to Cyprus, which was the first stop on the first journey, which requires getting on a ship to go to that island, they instead, Paul and Silas, went up through Syria, into Turkey, and into Greece, and ultimately into the farthest reaches of Macedonia. And so, as a result, they not only strengthened many of the churches, not all of them, but many of the churches from the first missionary journey, they established more new churches in places that you will recognize. Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus. Keep in mind, the original vision was to go back and strengthen the church. Paul and Silas did this. But as they went, knowing that Barnabas and, and Mark were going to be going through Cyprus and into Pamphylia, which is on the lower portions of the route, then they realized they didn't have to go back to all those churches, which then enabled them to go and plant more churches. Paul's wisdom, which created the separation uh, initially, has now led to churches that you and I have studied in Scripture. It's pretty impressive. But as Paul was led by his wisdom to his path, Barnabas was led by grace to his path. And by, his, by the grace given there, he and Mark went to Cyprus, and his second spot that they went to was Pamphylia. And if you remember from this text, it was in Pamphylia that Mark abandoned them on the first missionary journey. So that means he is having to go back to the place of his error, the place where he made his mistake, the place where he failed. Most of us, if we know we failed somewhere, we'd want to avoid that location. We would want to avoid the people that we embarrassed ourselves in front of. But in this case, Mark had to go back to the very place that he abandoned the original journey. He had to face up and own up to whatever had caused that mistake. But we know that the grace must have been sufficient because in Mark's situation, 
Not only did he get to go back there and make right with that church, but the fruit of the vision that these men had gone out on, again, to strengthen the church and build the church, now has doubled many-fold. Because you have Paul and Silas going to the northern reaches and further uh, west than ever before. And then you have Paul and Barnabas coming underneath and doing all the churches that have been established first. All the while, Mark is being restored. God ultimately was glorified in their disagreement because they did not let it hinder the church. You see, in the text, we know from looking at the book of Acts and looking at the epistles that both Paul and Barnabas, after they split up, remained some of the core leaders of the church. Have you ever been exposed to leaders in the church that both had a great reputation, both had a lot of respect, they ended up in disagreement and split, but the church was not intact when they split. Have you seen that? Where the church was hindered by two godly leaders that had an argument and they could not work out whatever their issues were, so they split, and as a result, the church was hurt? Some of you sit here now as victims or in pain or with scars of such church incidents. But in this case, there are no scars. There are no uh, issues that have to be landmines developed by, uh, led by Paul that Barnabas has to now fix as Mark comes in behind Paul. No, they did not create an issue for the church to consider them both as godly leaders. Secondly, the church did not split. You do not see a church splitting in this. You see two teams becoming formed because they saw things philosophically different. And that's where they kept it, philosophically different. They didn't change the mission and vision of the church. They didn't change the mission and vision of their lives. They just changed the means by which they were going to do it because God was leading them differently. And as a result, the gospel is now being heard. Because of this split, the gospel is now being heard in new frontiers. Now, another thing to make note that's pretty amazing to me is that Mark not only is fully restored in this whole journey with his cousin, but he then becomes the one that God leads to write the first gospel ever written about the life of Jesus Christ. You know it as the book of Mark. It's fascinating to me that the man that wasn't worthy to go with Paul on a second missionary journey because he had abandoned them is now restored to the point that God chooses him to write the first gospel. And not only that, you see all the things that I just said, that, that Paul and Barnabas remain the key leaders of the church. The church doesn't split over it. Paul doesn't say you must choose him or choose me. You don't see that Paul starts talking poorly about Mark at all. In fact, you see nothing to the effect except for after this journey with Barnabas, Mark is now esteemed as much as Paul 
and Barnabas. In the book of Colossians, in the book of 2 Timothy, in the book of Philemon, Paul refers to Mark as a partner in the ministry. In fact, he even asked the church that, that, that Barnabas, I mean, sorry, Mark was serving in at the time. He asked that church, can you send Mark to me because he is such a great helper? So you're going from Paul saying, I cannot see the wisdom in bringing Mark along, a failure, somebody who will desert along on this journey. I cannot see a context where that's wise. To now Paul is saying, please send Mark to me. He is of such great help. So he becomes partner, proclaimed partner, stated partner of Paul. He becomes somebody that is requested by Paul as essential to Paul being able to go forward. And then Peter, you know, one of the greatest apostles says this in his, his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Mark is like a son to me. So you now have partner, helper, ambassador with Paul, and then Peter loving Mark so much that he considers him like a son. So the source of what caused the separation, the presence of Mark, has now become essential to the entire health of the church. And we benefit today. We benefit from the writings of Mark by reading about Jesus from the earliest forms written by Mark's hand. We benefit from the health of Paul and his writings because he said his greatest helper was Mark. So you and I stand here benefiting from somebody who was given a second chance and being given a second chance by a cousin who ultimately then restored him to health. Then the one that had issue with him and then braces him himself. Paul also goes to great lengths to make sure that the church that he was sending Mark to in one text, he said, make sure that you receive Mark well. I've given instructions to that fact. Probably because they had known Mark had abandoned the journey before. But Paul wanted them to know, I affirm Mark. Keep in mind, the most successful partnership in the young history of the church was split apart because Paul saw Mark as a failure and Barnabas saw him with hope. And in the end, the church did not split. These both men maintained their integrity and vision and the church embraced them both and eventually, they partnered once again. And at no point was the church hindered, but rather, quite frankly, it doubled because of the result of all that took place here. So what can we learn about how they handled this conflict? How can we handle conflict? Because if you're a living human being, and you actually allow yourself to have access to people, then conflict is something that is the norm. But the difference between somebody who handles that conflict with God's direction versus somebody who handles it 
with more of the flesh and the way they would want to handle it is vastly different. One burns bridges, the other one keeps the bridge intact. So what can we learn here? Number one, by looking at this text, you see this. The vision for your life must be in line with God's purposes. If you want to have healthy management of conflict, your life must be in line with God's vision and purposes for your life. Secondly, the attitude by which you address these conflicts must come under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this text, but his handiwork is all over it. If you know anything about Paul's temperament, it would not be like him to actually be quiet about an issue that he's passionate about, to withhold his opinions about another. But yet you do not find any disparagement of Mark in this text. You won't find it anywhere from Paul. And so his attitude clearly was altered because he was under the leadership of God's Spirit on his life. It had not allowed, by the Holy Spirit leading him, it therefore kept his attitude from separating the church and hindering the church. And therefore, he did not speak poorly of Barnabas or of Mark. So, we must align our vision to the God's purposes in order for us to be walking in the right direction relationally. We must allow our attitudes to come under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and be submitted to the Spirit's guidance. And lastly, our desired outcomes must always be that God gets the glory. That right there is the deal breaker. If, this, if in your relational world, your conflicts, if it's about you becoming right and being seen as right, guess who the desired glory is for? You. If it's all about you being right and it's, and it's all about you winning the day or to make sure that it, this conflict continues to have a bridge burning, it is not about God getting the glory. It's about you getting the glory. And so just by making sure that not by all attitudes and all actions that it's about God being seen in your life, that will transform the potential outcomes of that conflict. Now, the other side of this is, is you can't control the other person. You can't control it, you, but you can submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. And I guarantee you, if you choose to control your own attitude without the leadership of God, if you choose a vision that is not aligned with God's purposes, if you choose to glorify yourself, you have burnt the bridge. It will not be saved. But if you do these three things, you keep the bridge from being torn out and allow it to be intact. It might be burning, but you've allowed it to stay intact because that's the best you can do in the context. I recognize that as I speak this, while it's clear from Scripture what is true, what is easy to practice isn't the truth. To live out truth requires perseverance. 
and it requires courage. And I do not underestimate some of the sticky situations that many of you are in. But let's let the glory go to God by our attitudes. Let's let our vision be aligned with Him. And let's let ourselves be led by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and not our spirit. Let's pray. God, I know that this is not a simple sermon when it comes to practice. Our emotions can get the best of us. Our anger can take over us. Our justice can cause ruin without being constructive, not being under your leadership, not having the right vision, and certainly choosing not to glorify you. So God, forgive us when we've tried to control it. But God, I pray that your grace and mercy will guide each person here with, with the conflicts that they are in the midst of. I pray this in Jesus' name. So we have a charge from the example of Barnabas and Paul that in our conflicts, we don't tear down the bridges. We seek to great effort to make sure that God gets glory, that our attitudes reflect the glory of God, and that our vision is about that glory, his purposes. I am going to be praying for you now because I recognize this is difficult in some of those very tenuous, stressful relationships. So God, I just pray that regardless of what's in this room, I don't know whether it's marital, familial, relational at work, or if it is within the church. I don't know. But God, I pray that there would be perseverance to honoring you with our attitudes, with our thoughts, with our words, and with our actions. To your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wish to pray with somebody, we'll have people underneath the cross who'll be glad to pray with you. God bless and be peacemakers in your relationship.